Alright, good morning everybody. And uh, welcome to any of our students who might be watching online right now. Um, you guys might be aware that the Yukon students moved in this last weekend. Um, we, never, we almost never see the students who are regulars here the first weekend because a lot of them are active in the crew campus ministry and they have a weekend kickoff uh, first weekend of every semester. So hopefully we'll get to uh, be reunited with them uh, next Sunday. But uh, <clears throat> if you guys are listening, I hope your kickoff retreat is going well and that you're uh, having fun planning for this semester's ministry. Um, before we get started on the message, I uh, just wanted to do a quick follow-up uh, from last week. Last week we were joined by Michael DeStefano from the Amira Ministry, which uh, helps women who are transitioning out of human trafficking. And I meant to put up some of this information last week and, and forgot to. Um, but uh, if you were interested in in following up at all with what he said, you know, finding out more about possible ways to get involved with what Amira does, you can go to the website, amirainc.org, and there's uh, some, some opportunities that are listed there. And also, you know, Mike gave some pretty startling statistics about the extent of the problem of human trafficking globally. And if you just want to find out more about that problem, um, uh, just I found both of these resources very helpful. Mike recommended them, thepolarisproject.org and www.worldwithoutexploitation.org. So give those uh, a look sometime. Um, I forgot to get my water, and I'm going to grab that. Thanks. Uh, I have been battling something all this week. I had a negative COVID test, so uh, don't be worried about that. Uh, I think it might just be allergies, but um, yeah, we finally got rain, so stuff started growing, right? Um, but yeah, hopefully I can uh, make it through today, okay. <coughs> so, uh, as Keith said, we're starting a new series today called The Creed. And this is the, the same thing that we've been going through with our teens uh, over the last year. We've had a monthly class uh, with the teens called What We Believe, where we're looking at the creed, which is the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is an ancient summary of the Christian faith. And if you are one of those teens that's been in the class and you're here this morning, I just want to reassure you, I am not just going to be repeating word for word what I've said over the last year. Um, there's going to be some new content here. Of course, there's going to be some overlap, but hopefully enough that you won't get bored. And hey, review is good too, right? Because this was almost a year ago now. So, um, But yeah, the Apostles' Creed, it is an ancient summary of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And there's a few very minor disputes over what the most accurate form of the creed is. And when we get to those points of contention, I'll, I'll explain what they are. But Generally, there is agreement on the Apostles' Creed that it is a, uh, a good summary of the core beliefs that were first handed down to us from the Apostles and have been passed down generation to generation. And the version that we're using, it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So throughout the fall, what we're going to be doing is taking each piece, each line of the creed, and talking about what does this mean, why is it worded the way that it's worded, and uh, what does it mean for us as a church to affirm these things. So a little bit of back, background information here. There is a version of this creed that was being used as early as the second century, so that means the 100s AD. And what's, what's fascinating is that the version of this that scholars have found was called the Old Roman Creed. So already in the 100s AD, this was called Old, which tells you that it must have been being used by you know, churches shortly after Jesus' resurrection. So very early on. Uh, it appears that it was used in baptism ceremonies. So uh, the person being baptized would, would state the creed as a way of affirming that they are in line with the, the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And today this creed is affirmed by both the Catholic and most Protestant branches of the church, almost all uh, Protestant branches. Uh, St. Augustine once wrote that the creed should be committed to memory and used against, quote, the insidious assaults of the heretics. And uh, the Protestant reformer and theologian John Calvin said that the creed, quote, furnishes us with a full in every way complete summary of faith containing nothing but what has been derived from the infallible word of God. So, okay, let's get into it. Today we are looking at that first line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. How are we going to get a whole sermon out of this, right? What could be more simple than this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty? Well, I think we can get a lot of it out of it, actually. And I think the first thing that deserves some attention are those two little words, I believe. What does it mean to believe in something? Uh, does it just mean to say, I recognize that it exists? You know, when you think about it, a lot of the time when people debate over religious beliefs and things like, is there a God? Is there not a God? Um, they, they, they're talking mainly about that question. Like, is it, is it real? Does it exist? But belief in the Bible, biblical belief, which is known as faith, is so much more than just recognizing that something exists. In fact, the Apostle James, he was frustrated with the congregation in Jerusalem because they had gotten into this mindset, some of them, uh, that, that believing in Christ just meant believing the right things, just assenting to certain propositional truths. And, and so James wrote, you believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So if you can't tell, there's some sarcasm in there, right? Demons have no problem recognizing that God exists, but that doesn't mean that they're on good terms with God. 
So how should we think about belief, what it really means to, to believe in something? Well, here's an illustration for you. Imagine that you just got a new job. Uh, you just made it through the first week. This is the job that you studied for. Uh, you've been preparing for this for years, but it has been really difficult. It's been a miserable week and you're really doubting yourself. And so you open up to a friend and you say, I just don't know if I can do it. And your friend says, I believe in you. Now, does your friend mean, I think you exist? <laughs> it's like, no. If your friend says that, she's saying, I have confidence in you. I trust that you can pull this off. And so when we say the creed, I believe, which those two words undergird everything we're going to say, right? Everything follows from those words, I believe, you want to think of it in that way. I am putting my trust in this. I am putting my hope in this. I'm putting my confidence in this. I'm living my life in light of this. That's what it really means to, to believe, to have biblical faith. Now, I, I think this distinction is important because, you know, some people might say, well, Ryan, sometimes I have doubts about things in the creed. You know, there are days where it's hard for me to believe. And so you might ask, well, does that mean that it is disingenuous for me to say the creed? Should I not say the creed if I have any doubts? What if I'm 99.999% sure, but there's still this little part of me that's like, ah, I don't know. Would it be wrong for me to say the creed? And my answer is no, it would not be wrong for you to say the creed so long as you really are putting your hope, your confidence in what it says and choosing to live your, your life in light of it. You know, as an illustration, um, I like to ride roller coasters. It's okay if you don't like to ride roller coasters. This is not arguing that you should ride roller coasters, but I like to ride them. But usually when I am standing in line for a roller coaster, I have some doubts, right? And I, I'm wondering, okay, is that safety bar going to hold? Um, you know, and, 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 and as many, even if I'm waiting in line for like hours and everybody is getting off with smiles on their faces and as many people that left are still coming back, there's still this feeling of, well, I cannot be 100% sure that everything's going to work okay, right? But here's the thing, I still can choose to get on that roller coaster. And I, I usually do, right? And so that's the way that you also want to think about belief, right? When you say the creed, it's not that you're saying, I know with 100% mental certainty that all of this is true. I mean, the only way that you can know anything with 100% mental certainty is if you're omniscient. Are you omniscient? No, none of us are omniscient, right? We can know a lot of things, but there's always a lot more things that we could know, right? So this is the way that life works. You never know anything 100% for certain. You don't know when you get in your car and you drive here that the brakes aren't going to fail. But 
Every day you make choices about what risks are you going to take, what are you going to choose to put your faith in. It's a choice. That's part of the dignity of being human, is that you get to decide what you are going to put your faith in. And so when we say the creed, we are saying, I am choosing to put my trust and my hope in these truths and to live my life in light of these. Okay. So, of course, one of the central truths that we live our lives in light of as Christians is that there is a supreme personal being who is trustworthy. I believe in God. Now, the first line uses two words to describe God, right? Father and Almighty. And what we're going to spend the rest of this morning talking about is what does it mean to affirm God as Father and as Almighty? So first, Father. Now, the first thing I want to get out of the way is what does it not mean to call God Father? Because for a lot of people, the first thing they hear when they hear God is Father is God is male. And then the second thing they, heard, they hear is males are inherently closer to God than females. And I'm not saying everybody's mind goes there, but some, some people's minds go there. And I just want to be clear that from the very beginning of the Bible, there, there's some, some information that throws a wrench in that whole way of thinking. So in the book of Genesis, when it describes the creation of human beings, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So out of everything that God has made, Human beings are unique. Human beings are made in his image. In his image, he created them. Who is them? Well, the next line clarifies. Male and female, he created them. So, very early in the Bible, it makes this point that male and female are both equally made in the image of God. We may be made to reflect God's character in different ways, but we are both fully made in the image of God. Now you might ask, well, okay, then why do we use male pronouns when we refer to God? Why don't we call God mother just as much as we call God father? And that is a big topic that I don't want to get into all the weeds of that, but my short answer is because this is the tradition that we're a part of and the tradition that was handed down to us. The, the scriptures, which we recognize as inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, routinely use male pronouns in referring to God. Jesus, who we believe to be the exact representation of God's being, routinely use male pronouns when referring to God. Uh, and so out of respect for that tradition and for Jesus, we use male pronouns. Um, but at the same time, we have to also recognize that the tradition that has been handed down to us recognizes male and female as equally made in the image of God. And so when we use these male pronouns for God, we are not suggesting that females are any uh, less like God than males are. And it's important 
uh, to make that distinction. So if calling God Father isn't about exalting maleness over femaleness, what is it about? Well, interestingly, calling God Father hardly happens at all in the Old Testament. It isn't until Jesus shows up that we start hearing that a lot, because Jesus routinely refers to God as his Father. And not only does he routinely refer to God as his Father, he starts teaching his disciples to refer to God in the same way. Uh, you might remember that when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, okay, here's how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, right? That's what that prayer is sometimes called, the Our Father. So Jesus taught his disciples to refer to God as their Father, and the point he was trying to get across is that they need to see God as loving parents. As loving parents. He encouraged them to see God not only as their creator and their lawgiver and their judge. Yes, he is those things. But he also wanted them to recognize him as loving parents. Um, I think one of the best examples of this is one of my favorite passages in scripture. I have probably quoted this passage more times than any other passage in the Bible during my time here at St. Paul's. It's uh, Matthew 7. Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love how Jesus just seems to have this kind of, of course, attitude about it, right? Like, you fathers... Even though you're all sinners, you know the difference between a good gift for your kids and a bad gift. And generally speaking, if your kids ask for a good gift, you'll give it to them if you can. Right? So how much more so should that be true of your Father in heaven? So what Jesus is encouraging them to do is to see their, their Father in heaven as a loving parent and then to interact with him in that way. Right? To actually ask him for good things, trusting that he is a loving parent who wants to give what is truly good to us. So this is the kind of passage that you want to think of when you affirm, I believe in God the Father. You believe in a God who is a loving parent, a God who has your best interests at heart. A God who didn't just create you, but also wants to redeem you, who wants you to flourish, right? That's what good fathers do. Good fathers don't just create children. They also help those children to flourish and to thrive. And if they go astray, they help them to get back on track, right? Okay, and then secondly... We affirm that this God who is a father is also almighty. Almighty. And when you hear that word almighty, I would encourage you to think, we believe God is more powerful than anything or anyone. 
Not only that, God is more powerful than everything and everyone put together. God is more powerful than all of creation. Some people, when they hear that word almighty, they go to maybe kind of a, a more philosophical definition, which is something like, God can do absolutely anything. But I would encourage you not to think of God's almightiness that way, because there's some problems with that definition of almighty. Um, because the Bible suggests that there actually are some things that God can't do. I know that might sound kind of heretical, but think about this, right? Um, Hebrews 16, 6.18 tells us that God can't tell a lie. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He cannot disown himself. In other words, God cannot violate who God is. And, and part of who God is, according to 1 John 4.8, is uh, God is love, Right? So when you think about the power of God, we always have to recognize that this is a power that is directed by love. God cannot disown himself. He cannot violate who he is. So I prefer the definition of God is more powerful than anything and everyone. Nothing in creation is more powerful than God. But this God can do absolutely anything line can, can, it might not always be healthy in terms of where our mind goes when we start to think about that, okay? And also there's just these logical issues, you know, like um, issues with language and that sort of thing. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Okay, well, the answer to that is no. Um, but anyway, let's not get into, get into it, okay? God is more powerful than anything or any, anyone, so. Okay. Um, when I think of God's power, I am reminded of the pictures that we've been seeing from the James Webb Telescope. Have you guys seen any of these images? Um, so the, the James Webb Telescope is giving us the most revealing pictures of space that have been, ever been taken uh, by far. Uh, this is a telescope that cost about $10 billion to design uh, and to, to send off into space. Uh, it has a sun shield that has a maximum width of uh, 70 feet. And it's been sent out into space uh, 1 million miles away from us, which uh, that's more than four times the distance from Earth to the moon. So that's like if you got in a spaceship and traveled for 12 days, uh, then you would get to the James Webb Telescope. And from that distance and position, with the light from the sun being blocked out, it is able to capture light from billions of light years away. Uh, here's the first image that it's released. Could someone turn the lights off back there, just to bring this out a little bit? Um, I know the resolution is not that high, but... Um, so. This image here, first one that it produced, if you had a grain of sand and you held it up to the night sky, and then you said, okay, just the space in that grain of sand, zoom the James Webb telescope in on that space, that's what it sees. And in that picture, just about every 
dot of light, which there's thousands of dots of light in that picture, is a galaxy. And each galaxy has, on average, 100 billion stars. <laughs> so each dot there, 100 billion stars, there's thousands of them in a grain of sand's worth of the night sky. <laughs> right? The observable universe is 93 billion light years across. Which means if you could go at the speed of light, it would take 93 billion years to get across it. And that's just the observable universe. Uh, scientists estimate that there is much more universe beyond them that we can't, there that we can't see because the light uh, can't reach us. So no one knows for sure uh, how big the universe actually is. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that it's still expanding. Um, but no one knows for sure how big it is. Here's another shot. This is, I think, it's called the Carina Nebula. This is uh, pretty close, actually. This is in the Milky Way galaxy, just a mere uh, 7,500 light years away. Isn't that beautiful? How often do you feel awe? The dictionary defines awe as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. I think that every healthy spiritual life needs a regular diet of awe. When we say that we believe in an almighty God, we're saying, I believe in a God who can create this. I believe in a God who can create something that's 93 billion light years across. And not only can that God create it, that God can sustain it. Okay, we, we, we don't just believe that God like hit the button and then set everything in motion. We believe that God upholds creation. You know, almost like, you know, the creation's not, just like your microwave isn't going to run unless it's plugged in, right? And plugged into the source. We, we, we want to think of creation that way, that in every given moment, unless it's, it's getting energy from God, it's, not, it's just going to fall to nothing, right? God didn't, didn't just get the ball rolling. God sustains this unfathomable vastness all the time. And not only does he sustain it, God is aware of what's going on in every square inch of it, in places where no consciousness will ever be able to observe it other than God himself. I believe in God Almighty. I believe in a God who does things that fill my, my, my brain with awe and fear and wonder. Uh, a God who, who, who just blows my brain with his amazingness. A God who is almighty. Now, it's interesting. I think when people hear these kinds of numbers, they tend to react in two possible ways. So Some people hear about the vastness of the universe and they think, wow, God is amazing. God is awesome. And then other people are troubled. People think about this vast darkness and coldness and, and they think, I'm having trouble believing now. They think, well, here's the way I would put it, okay? 
Certainly, none of this information is any threat to the idea that God is almighty, right? But for some of us, we hear this and we struggle to then think that God is father, that God is loving parents. Because what our minds do is we go, well, if the universe is that big, and I am just a teeny little blip, right? I mean, even the, the metaphor of a drop in the ocean doesn't do it justice. How could, how could God care about me? How could he love me? It doesn't make any sense. Actually, uh, even before we knew the vastness of the universe, the psalmist wrote uh, expressing a similar feeling. Uh, he wrote, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Right? So it is, it is a common human impulse to feel awe, to see vastness, and then go, how could God care about finite little me? But the question I want us to ask ourselves is, is it really incompatible, God's love and the vastness of the universe? Is it really? I mean, as you hear about the vastness of the universe, do you feel the love for your loved ones, like, diminishing? Right? Think, oh, well, honey, I don't care about you anymore now that I know how, how far off and vast the reaches of space are. Right? That doesn't... That doesn't compute, so why would it be any different with God? Especially when we remember that God's power is not just his ability to create vastness, but his ability to be intimately aware of everything going on in that vastness, right? And if that doesn't reassure your doubt, here's something else to keep in mind. Uh, Keep in mind that what God has created is not just immeasurably larger than us, it's also immeasurably smaller, too. Um, the, the intricacies of creation are also like extending down to, to tininess that we can't even imagine. So, you know, again, let's go back to that grain of sand. If you have a grain of sand, uh, the radius of a DNA helix is a million times smaller than that grain of sand. The stuff that, you know, makes you you, the program, a million times smaller. And then the radius of a hydrogen atom is 40 times smaller than a DNA helix radius. And the radius of a proton is 60,000 times smaller than the radius of a hydrogen atom. And a quark, which is the smallest known component of reality, is 2,000 times smaller than the radius of a proton. So, if God is able to be intimately aware of what's going on with quarks and protons, and to care about that, to design that, I think he can care about us too, right? As a father would. So the psalmist actually answered his own question, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, by saying, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So the psalmist doesn't really answer the question, 
Why does God care? But what he does is he offers evidence that God does care. And the evidence is you have crowned them with glory and honor and you have made them rulers. What that means is human beings have this special capacity to rule over their surroundings in a way that no other creature on earth can. Is it possible that there are other creatures in the universe that do also have that capacity? I don't know, maybe. But at least on earth, we're the only ones, right? There are no other creatures that are sending James Webb telescopes off into space or writing literature or building skyscrapers or anything like that. We human beings are different. We're unique. And the psalmist is saying this is the evidence that God cares about us, that he's crowned us with this special honor. Now, the psalmist doesn't even touch on the greatest evidence that God cares because the greatest evidence hasn't happened yet, right? The greatest evidence is that God, the one who created this unfathomable vastness and is aware of all of it, took on flesh as a human being and then suffered and died on a cross. The one who made the unfathomable vastness died on a cross, a criminal's death, the most humiliating death of that time. The one who is almighty is also a father. The one who is father is also almighty. And when you think about it, we really need God to be both father and almighty in order to really believe in him, in order to really trust in him, right? Because if God is father, but not almighty, well, you know, he's got your best interests at heart, but how can you really trust that he's going to be able to do anything about the brokenness in your life and the brokenness in the world, right? You need to have confidence that God is almighty. But if you believe that God is almighty, but he's not father, he's not loving parent, well, that's just scary, right? There's no hope in that. What we need is a God who is both Father and Almighty, the creator of unfathomable vastness and the one who suffers and dies for us on a cross. And when we can hold those two together, then we can really believe, then we can really trust, then we can really put our confidence in him and our hope in him and live our lives in, in light of who he is, right? And so we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Amen? Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to reflect on this ancient creed. And Lord, I pray that over the next couple months, uh, as we do that, uh, you would just help us to see these truths, maybe in a new way, uh, in a way that uh, fills our souls with life and with joy and with purpose. Uh, Lord, we thank you for what has been handed down to us uh, by your saints and your Holy Spirit over the generations. We pray that we would treasure it and learn from it. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for being both a Father and Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh -huh.